reading this afternoon is Luke 18, verse 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his heart and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. great delight uh, to be back with you this afternoon and uh, as Mark has said we are continuing our series in the parables and today we come to this story about the tax collector and the Pharisee. Uh, We live in a world that is uh, performance obsessed because everything is performance assessed wherever you go in our culture today. You're only as good they say as your last performance Uh, and so in a world of Oscars and honours and Awards and glittering prizes, achievement is everything. And in a world of sound bites and stunning visual presentations, it's all too often the case that image triumphs over substance and performance over content. How the answer comes across sometimes seems to matter more than what the answer is actually saying. And many a well-qualified applicant fails in the job interview because, quote, he, she didn't perform very well under questioning. So if our progress up whatever slippery poles we might be climbing in this world depends on our peer group or upon our superior's judgment of our performance, how much more must it be so with God? After all, He has some pretty rigorous and demanding criteria, doesn't he? Remember the words of our Lord Jesus. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets. And we tend to think, well, there may be a bit of a deficit in those departments, but surely there are elements of our performance that can provide a counterbalance to it. Uh, He would want me to go to church, wouldn't he? Uh, To take Holy Communion regularly. He'd want me to have my children baptised, to deny myself during Lent a bit of fasting, perhaps keeping off the drink. Uh, He would want me to uh, give generously to charity. And hopefully these things together may redress the balance. Uh, I'll have a record of performance to offer God so that if there should be a day of judgment... If there should be an account to give after this world, well, I might not pass with flying colours, but I should have enough to offer in order to get by. And Jesus, and indeed the whole of the Bible, says, no. Where did you get that idea from? 
think again about performance. Think according to those upside-down values of the eternal kingdom that we've been looking at in these parables, where all our cultural presuppositions are questioned, and we're often wrong-footed by God's perspective. That startling last verse of the reading that we had just now, everyone who humbles, who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, Luke 8, 9-14, our passage, is the second parable about prayer. Last time, two weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the unjust judge, which immediately precedes it, uh, the unjust judge and the impoverished widow, and we saw that that taught us the sort of God that we pray to, the character of Almighty God, the polar opposite of that corrupt, self-seeking official that Jesus tells the story about. And today in this parable, we move from the sort of God that we pray to, to the sort of prayer that God listens to, the prayer that God honours and answers. The question is, whom does God vindicate? Who is accepted by him? And again in this story, we have two characters, uh, total opposites of one another. The Pharisee who exalts himself and the tax collector who humbles himself. The contrast is vivid, it's unmissable, it's almost humorous if it were not for the subject matter which is so desperately important. Now in his introduction Luke tells us in verse 9 that the purpose of the parable is directed towards the Pharisee because the Pharisee is a man who is confident of his own righteousness and looks down on everybody else, that's what he does in the story. So it holds up a mirror to the sort of attitude that before God is self-confident and in comparing oneself with everyone else, we're pretty well up the ladder. We're fairly high on the spectrum. It's very part, much part of our culture, isn't it? I don't know if you ever watched that uh, programme of Lord Sugar, the TV programme, The Apprentice. Uh, it's striking to me that the young people who put themselves or who are selected for that, uh, that uh, process, very often begin with tremendous confidence in their own abilities. They praise themselves to the skies. They dismiss their fellow competitors as various sorts of rubbish, only to be undone by their own incompetence in the practical tasks that they are set. And I think before God, the Pharisee must look something like that. He is overconfident about his performance. Let's remind ourselves of what Jesus says. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about or to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. So you go up to the temple to meet with God. Uh, You go to sacrifice in Jesus' day. The devout Jew, of course, uh, would be at the temple making his offerings and sacrifices. And you come to pray so as to establish a right relationship with God, a relationship of faith and devotion. But the Pharisee is utterly self-consumed. 
In the original, you have the pronoun I five times in two verses. The prayer is all in the active voice. I is the subject of every verb. And the whole so-called prayer is about himself and as an alternative translation might be, as the footnote says, to himself. So as verse 11 puts it, this is a prayer that is absolutely self-consumed. It's a performance prayer in and of itself. And in the one moment in the prayer when the focus is not on the Pharisee, it's not on the God whom he spuriously addresses at the beginning, It's on the other men alongside whom the speaker is unquestionably superior to. He's not a robber. He's not an adulterer or an evildoer or, heaven forbid, nothing like this lowest form of life just in the uh, peripheral vision that is this, this tax collector. Well, now, we don't have to be dressed in Pharisees' robes to have a heart like that before God. It's a default human position to want to present the record of our performances to him. This is that, what a good boy am I sort of prayer. A friend of mine was uh, telling me the other day about uh, his four-year-old daughter, and uh, he and his wife try to say prayers with her each evening, and they have a little routine in the family that we start our prayers with thinking of something that we can be really thankful for, something to thank God for. And uh, on this particular day, there'd been rather a nasty spat between mother and daughter. And when they sat down to pray, uh, the little girl didn't want to thank God for anything, didn't want to say prayers, didn't want to converse at all. So her mother said, well, we're going to sit here until you can think of something to be thankful for. Think hard, and I'm not going to go away. You think of something to say thank you for. And after what seemed like an age, apparently, Uh, the little voice was heard to say, thank you, God, for nice me. (laughs) Uh, That's what the Pharisee's saying, really. I'm such a great man. God, don't you remember my twice-weekly fasting? I know that you've said in the law that you only have to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement, but look, I do it a hundred times more. And I don't just tithe my crops, I give a tenth of everything I have. Look what I've done for you, God. Look at my record of performance. Thank you, God, for nice me. Thank you that I'm all right, that my religious activity confirms that I'm righteous and that I'm completely acceptable to you. I can go home with that warm glow of knowing that I've earned my acceptance because I really am worth it. So you owe me, God. Thank you. But the tax collector stood at a distance. And the tax collector is so aware of his unacceptability that he's on the very outskirts of the crowd, only just inside the house of worship. Uh, The Pharisee would have been thought of as probably one of the most pious men in the temple that day. Everyone would respect him. And the tax collector perhaps the most hated and despised of men in the temple that day, working for the occupying forces of the Romans, doubtless feathering his own nest from his fellow countrymen. God wouldn't have any time for him. And he seems to share that view himself, except that he has come to the temple to meet with God. 
He doesn't have any confidence in God's presence. His face is turned towards the earth. He can't look God in the face. He beats his chest as a sign of his sorrow and his devastation. And he confesses himself to be a sinner. That's how he defines himself. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And because all that sinners can ask from God is mercy, that is what he cries out for. Now the Pharisee didn't need that. He had a performance record. But the words of Jesus are very telling in the last verse, aren't they? I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. One went home justified, the other apparently did not. And it's interesting that Jesus uses the vocabulary in his comments that he's put into the mouth of the Pharisee earlier. The Pharisee says, thank you God that I'm not like this man, that demonstrative adjective. Jesus picks that up and says, it's this man whom the Pharisee despised, who went home justified before God. Why? Well, they were both sinners, but one of them petitioned God for mercy. The Pharisee was self-deceived. He thought he didn't need the mercy of God. He had no idea of how much he needed God's mercy. But his attitude of pride in himself and the denigration of others was in itself a testimony to his sinfulness. And how it totally negated any of the righteous actions that he might have prided himself on carrying out. But God honours humility. Think again, says Jesus, about performance. God is not looking for a record of performance. Because he knows that we have nothing to offer. The prophet Isaiah, back in the Old Testament, said all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags in God's sight. And the Pharisees' righteous acts may well have been done not so much to glorify God or even to benefit others as motivated by his own accruing of merit, his own confidence in his performance. They were done for his benefit rather than the glory of God. And so he is not uh, acceptable to God because he is not asking God for mercy. His comparison was irrelevant with other people. His assumption of righteousness was abhorrent to Jesus. His performance was valueless. How could he possibly atone for what he had become by the things that he did? So such an approach is, in Christ's view, totally failed. It's totally flawed. And the the reason is and this is the theological purpose behind the parable, that the law was never designed to be the way by which we climb up a ladder to God. That was so amongst the Jewish people from the very beginning of the giving of the law in the Old Testament under Moses. It was not that if you keep the law, God will accept you. God said to Moses, I have rescued you and your people from Egypt, and I brought you on eagle's wings to myself, Now the law is the way in which you are to fulfill this covenant relationship that I brought you into. And by the fulfillment of my law, you will not acquire my grace. My grace has brought you to the point at which I can transform your life through the relationship with me. And that relationship is fostered by your recognition of my truth and righteousness. 
So the Apostle Paul, obviously skilled in the law, a Pharisee of the Pharisees before he was converted, writes to the Galatian Christians, a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And his argument is, keeping the law could never justify us before God because you would be required to obey the whole law. And that's not a very promising concept, is it? Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the law is not like a pile of bricks. The Ten Commandments are not like a pile of bricks from which you could take one or two and uh, still have the pile standing. Uh, Or it's not like those exam papers that we used to take at university where you went into the exam room and it says at the top of the paper, attempt any four. Rather patronizing sort of rubric, but that's what it said, attempt any four. The Ten Commandments are not like that. It's not that you can select the four that you think you might score quite well on. No, the Ten Commandments, the commandments of God, are like a car windscreen. One stone, and it shatters. And no amount of performance can put Humpty together again. So the way to be in the right with God as the Bible tells us from beginning to end, is by faith alone, in his grace alone, through the forgiveness which he has supplied in his infinite mercy, by this man who tells this story as he is on his way to Jerusalem to give his life a ransom for many, dying on the cross as a substitute for me, the sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Again, the Apostle Paul says, he became sin, he who knew no sin, for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now that is very humbling, but it is the only entry requirement into the kingdom of God. Confessing my sin, calling on God for his mercy, so that I am justified freely by his grace. And the glorious message as we come up to the season of Easter again is that the death of Jesus achieves what I could never perform for myself. The 18th century hymn writer Augustus Toplady put it this way, not the labours of my hands can fulfil your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save. And you alone, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. This is the one who goes home justified before God. And it is not that God has swept our sins under the carpet and pretended they're not there. But that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he becomes the sacrifice for our sin. He takes our sin upon himself in order that we might receive his righteousness and on the basis of his atonement we might know the joy of sins forgiven and peace with God and the liberty from performance to trusting in a saviour who loved us enough to give himself for us. But as I finish, you know, this is uh, so alien to our natural thinking, isn't it? And we so often get caught up thinking Yes, but God will only accept me if my performance in the last week has been reasonable. We live every day before the cross of Christ. 
Every day we need that forgiveness. Every day our performance falls far short of what it ought to be. But God does not judge us by that. He receives us in his grace. And we must not pervert the story. I rather like the illustration of a Sunday school teacher who's just finishing teaching this parable to her class. And having taught them the story quite accurately, she then says to the class, now boys and girls, before we go home, let's just say a little prayer to thank God that we are not like the Pharisee. (laughs) Think again about performance. The standards of this world do not apply within the kingdom of the heavens. And if we've been freely received and freely forgiven, we shall not be judgmental of other people. We shall want to be the channels of God's grace by which we, sinners who know his mercy, encourage others to share that mercy too. Let's pray together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from every kind of wrong. So our gracious Father, we thank you that we can call you Father, that we can approach you in prayer because you in your grace and mercy have taken away our sins through the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And just as that uh, tax collector called out to you for mercy and at that stage in the history of your people there was the sacrificial system by which sin could be covered. So we thank you that now there is no more sacrifice for sin. No more need for temple altars. No more Uh, requirement of us to present to you something to cover our sin but rather through Jesus Christ and his death in our place we can know that our sins have been forgiven and that as far as the east is from the west so far you have removed them from us you've cast them into the depths of the sea so please help us to be people who are liberated from seeking to present ourselves to you as though we had some record of performance May we live lives of love and grace and truth because your grace has laid hold of us. And may the righteousness such as we, what we have, Christ's righteousness put to our account, enable us to live godly lives in this world because you are the one who has rescued us in your mercy. So go with us into the day we pray. Grant us your continued presence, refresh us, renew us by your Holy Spirit. And help us to serve you well as forgiven sinners. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.